Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. I've been reading a lot lately, which is probably not a good thing, you know, given the way the world is. Maybe I should be out there being an activist, but I've been reading. I started reading Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman. Strangely enough, a 700-page novel about Stalingrad is really depressing, so I had to stop. Funny that. Along those same lines, viewed in a certain way, I've been reading Maggie Haberman's new book, Confidence Man, about Donald Trump. And it's kind of like watching a car wreck that you know is going to happen. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into Trump because we've got other more important things to talk about, although he may be president again in three years, who can say. But I mean, most of the stuff that's in the book is stuff that is already kind of known. Like, for instance, she brings up, I think I had heard this before, that he had a button installed on the desk in the White House such that when he pressed it, a valet would bring in a can of Diet Coke, which I think is really fascinating in a weird way. It's sort of also alarming because I really hope that the bring me a Coke button was placed far enough away from the let's bomb Pyongyang button that, you know, you wouldn't make a, you wouldn't make a mistake. I mean, you're feeling kind of dry and Pyongyang goes up in flames. Also, you hope. You hope. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but also, he, she mentions, and this I, I think I had heard of before, but really illustrates the fundamental nature of Donald Trump. And, you know, we get fascinated by these horrible details about Donald Trump, and really probably as serious analysts of politics or whatever, it would be better if we were looking at the social and political forces for which Donald Trump is a representative or an, or an avatar or what have you. But he, on 9-11, and this was before he gave the interview in which he falsely claimed that he'd seen Arab Americans dancing in Jersey City in celebration of 9-11. On the day, he gave this interview, this phone interview to a local TV station in New York, and they were sort of asking him about it, and he started talking about how the employees of the Trump organization in the building at 40 Wall Street had been watching it. But then he started going on about how 40 Wall Street had been the tallest building in Manhattan before the World Trade Center towers had been built, which was not true, by the way. But he just couldn't resist the temptation to make it about him and his gigantic tower. And, and So much narcissism. I know, it's really incredible. And it seems to go along with a certain political tendency these days. And I mention this because there's a certain, I think, very palpable sense in which he shares this, maybe in less degree, well, certainly in less degree, with Liz Truss, who has this weird obsession with Margaret Thatcher. Okay, that's not uncommon among British conservatives, especially of a certain age, but who insists that she has some sort of alternative facts on the basis of which the British economy can be rejigged to have levels of growth unseen in the last decades by doing things which, for which there's not a shred of evidence that they actually cause growth, like tax cuts, especially for people at the top end of the income distribution. There's, this is a common zombie right-wing idea that if you cut taxes on the rich, they'll expand their businesses or whatever instead of just buying more synthetic CDOs or whatever it is that they want to bet on in the market. But anyway, it seemed like in the course of the last two weeks since we talked that all the bad ideas that had come out in the mini budget were being loaded up on the good ship Quaratang with an eye towards sinking them to the bottom of the Thames and maybe coming up with a more reasonable economic policy. I mean, I really expected daily that Quaratang was going to be asked to fall on his sword, especially after the Conservative Party conference, which seemed to go rather poorly for Truss. But it seems like they maybe backed off the, the top-end tax cut, although I'm not sure whether they actually did it or just said they were going to do it. But 
it does seem like there's been a kind of like quieting of the far-right concern or the right-wing concern about what her policies might do to the British economy. So do you think that she's still in deep trouble? Do you think that the Labour Party might actually make a recovery, a political recovery on the back of this? I think she's in very deep trouble, even though they, they did scrap the abolition of the top rate of tax, the 45% rate. That calmed the financial markets to some degree. The polling is still extremely bad for them. Today, uh, Labour was polling, I think, over 30 points ahead of them, according to the Times. And the range is still like 26% up to 47% in terms of a poll lead. This is a poll lead that the Labour Party has never seen in the history of polling. (laughs) It's not impossible for the Conservatives to come back from that, but it's extremely difficult. And the leadership that they have is extremely inexperienced, not particularly strategic given what we've seen so far, and the time is running out for them. So I think it's very, it's going to be very difficult for them to come back from this, which is a good thing, but it's not the case that this is anything to do with Starmer's great sense of political strategy. You could say he was betting on a Tory leader to trip over their own foot and to benefit from the results. Well, Liz Truss hasn't even done that. She's set herself on fire and is now running around the house yelling about an anti-flammable coalition. Yeah, when I read the poll numbers, I think I read an article about it in the Washington Post, I thought it must be a misprint. I mean, I thought they must have gotten a decimal point wrong or something like that because it was just so such a remarkable swing. And um, it's funny because Starmer really has done nothing except kept his mouth mostly shut. I mean, there was that sort of period when the Labor Party conference was going on when they were, the sort of talk was like, well, how do they finesse the death of the queen and et cetera, et cetera. And we also, you know, we talked the last time about how the death of the queen might provide at least a chance for the trust government to get ahead of the news cycle in a way which they hadn't managed to do prior to that point. I mean, the mini budget had the effect that you would kind of expect, given its insanity. Or not insane. I mean, it's, it's based on a certain kind of logic, which says that if you give wealthy people more money, they'll create more jobs. There's no evidence that they actually do this. Once again, if you give people down the income distribution more money, they spend it on goods and services. If you give people up the income distribution more money, it goes in their savings account, or they place increasingly exotic bets in the equities market or what have you. And people running the markets in Great Britain saw this. I mean, this is a reason why the pound nosedived. I mean, it really came closer to parity than I've ever seen it in my lifetime and probably could get there if they continue doing what they're doing. And it just seems like they're obsessed with this idea. And they've seem like they've read a lot of very ideological books to the extent they've probably read any books, but you know, or they've listened to a lot of sort of ideological talking heads who go on about this theory of economic growth for which there's really no evidence. A lot of it is is kind of based on rewriting the history of the Reagan administration. It was a period of economic growth in the United States, but it wasn't because of austerity. I mean, austerity, you, you, you can't cut your way to growth. Austerity isn't the path to growth. Austerity causes the economy to shrink, unless things get kind of weird at the, at the limits. But the trust government just seems obsessed with this idea. And whenever anybody reasonable, even on their own end of the spectrum, seems to want to call them on it, they just double down. Well, they doubled down for as long as they could. The fundamental weakness of all British governments is around monetary policy and pound sterling. There's a kind of nationalism about the pound that you absolutely, under no circumstances, can allow the pound's value to be reduced. And this crippled a Labour government in the 60s, 
and it's been a problem for successive governments. Of course, the the strength of the pound is a great economic advantage in many ways, but it's also, if you want to have a serious industrial strategy of export-led growth, you need to accept a devaluation sooner or later, arguably. You know, if you want to deal with a current account deficit, and we have an enormous current account deficit, the Tories don't care about that, of course, because they're about financialization. Right. And, of course, the other factor being the interest rates. The interest rates have been hiked by the Bank of England, our Federal Reserve, in response to skyrocketing inflation to try and get it under control. It's also because they want to discipline the labour market because unemployment is too low. They won't say that, but that's what's going on. Right. That's the strategy of central bankers in the industrialized world. Going back to the mid-20th century, one of the sort of interesting historical dimensions of this is that This explanatory factor, which is often cited for the Bundesbank's obsession with inflation, is the idea that hyperinflation in Germany during the Weimar period had something to do with Hitler coming to power, which it did, but not what people think. I mean, hyperinflation was in the early 20s, and it was 10 years later that Hitler came to power, and he came to power sort of on the back of deflation that was instigated by the Brunin government as a way of, once again, disciplining the labor market, trying to crush the power of the labor unions in Germany in the early 1930s. I mean, the irony is that this obsession with inflation, which is, once again, very much oriented to questions of the labor market. I mean, this idea is that there's this wage price spiral that gets going so that if you can tamp down the wage demands you can then get a handle on inflation. That's a kind of gross oversimplification, but it's basically a reflection of how a lot of people in central banking think about it. Yeah, and it has no relationship to the present economic conditions. You know, I mean, it's, I think it's very clear that we have a profit price spiral as opposed to a wage price spiral. And you can just see that by the fact that wages do not keep up with the skyrocketing profits we're seeing. But this is the fundamental contradiction for Liz Truss. She needs higher interest rates to bring down inflation as a economic priority. But in doing so, she's seriously hurt the Tory base, who are all, well, not all of them, but most of them, or at least the core, are people who have mortgages or they've paid off their mortgages in the lucky cases. But many of them have mortgages, and they're, of course, extremely worried about interest rates. And that's a big reason why the polls look the way they do, because... Frankly, many of those people wouldn't care what the Tories do, provided that interest rates are steady and house prices continue to rise. Liz Truss could have done anything, provided that remained constant, and there would have been a base level of Tory support. And that's gone now. Yeah, that's the interesting underlying feature of bourgeois politics, if you will, in the United States, too. I mean, this is what was going on in the, in the mid-2000s, uh, right before the collapse of the real estate bubble, I mean, because the theory of economic growth for liberal capitalism in the post-war era has been buy a house somewhere you keep from freezing in, uh, assuming energy prices are, uh, remain stable, which we can talk about in a minute, too, because there's, there's an interesting element of that. But ultimately, it's something you use, but it's also an asset. And the idea in the United States, and I'm sure in the United Kingdom, too, has been you buy this thing, it's an asset, it gets increasingly valuable. You either then renegotiate your mortgage or you sell it later on, pocket the profit, that money for for purchasing of goods and services. And that's the middle class theory. So if you're going to do something which is going to be a kick in the crotch to mortgage holders, this is a sort of interesting way in which the trust government has been pretty tone deaf to the desires of its actual middle class voting base. And that's an interesting thing too, just in the respect that one of the central elements of conservative politics 
in the second half of the 20th century and in the first decades of the 21st, is getting people to vote against their economic interest. I mean, this is why Trump is constantly going on about brown people coming for our white women. This is the basis of the intense fascination with the politics of immigration that goes on in Europe, is trying to get people's attention away from the unfortunate economic consequences of the policies of conservative governments like Truss's. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we'll probably see more culture war stuff come out of the trust government. We've already seen signs from the Home Office that they're going to ratchet up the pressure in terms of tighter border controls and harsher measures on migrants and asylum seekers. In the summer, there was already gestures around issues like trans rights. So I think we'll see more rhetoric. You know, they'll try and shift the battlefield because they've completely screwed themselves on economics. And it's very difficult to see how they can make a comeback. There's a long time till the next election. It's possible that the Conservative Party will oust Liz Truss at some point, because why not? You know, they've already ousted so many people, they might as well have another one. And in that case, they could maybe get someone semi-competent in charge and hit reset, but just before the next election. That's a plausible strategy to hold on after the next election, but it's going to be very tough for them. At the same time, it's worth noting that Labour has a very, very steep hill to climb. You know, they've got just under 200 seats the last time I checked. They need at least 326 to form a minority government. It's going to be tough to win, realistically, 130, 140 seats in one go, just to have a weak government. Right. I mean, they, Labour, it seems to me, has two big problems. One is that this happens so early in the election cycle. People have a pretty short memory, even if they're getting jammed, weirdly enough. So I don't really see... I mean, I, I think you're right. I think one of the things that might happen in the sort of intervening period between now and, and the next election is that the Conservative Party decides, well, off with her head. We'll get rid of trust. We'll get rid of Quartang. That was a terrible idea. We're back on the path of rectitude or a saner economic policy. They don't really then have to change anything. I mean, basically, they just get a different figurehead in. I mean, one of the problems with Truss's mini-budget was the degree to which it clearly pulled in the opposite direction from the way the central bank was operating. The governor of the central bank, I think, even said this explicitly in the media. But also, and this is a big thing which I take away from the politics of the Republican Party in the United States, whatever people may say to a pollster, especially when they've just seen their mortgage bill, what they'll actually do when they walk into a voting booth can be very different because then they're sort of alarmed by more visceral fears that they have or they think to themselves, well, you know, these guys made a mistake, but at least, you know, I'm roughly on the same side as them, so I'll give them another shot. I mean, it would be better for labor. I mean, it would be better for labor if someone was running the show besides Keir Starmer, but putting that aside for a moment, it would be better for labor if this had happened later in the cycle just because people have too long to forget and there's too much time for the Conservative Party to get it right-er, unlikely to get it right, but there you go. Yeah, I mean, there has to be an election before January 2025, so that's the time frame that we're working on. It, it's very tight for the Tories, but for Labour, it's far too long. And then Labour really has very little political substance to run on. There's a great deal of praise about Labour conference, mainly because of the flag-waving and the national anthem and Starmer finally came out with a policy, which was basically, uh, he, he framed it as we're going to bring back public energy, but it was actually like a, a state-owned startup. <laughs> I don't quite understand this, and maybe you can explain it to me, like, what the energy subsidy in the UK is supposed to be about. Is it a price cap, or are they paying the difference, or what's the plan there? It's often framed as a price cap because 
they're allowing things to rise to £2,500 a year, if I'm not mistaken, from where they currently are, which is a rise of maybe £1,000 a year, depending on what your bill looks like right now, it could be more. And they're basically subsidising everything above that. So effectively, it's a huge bailout of the energy industry. They're throwing vast amounts of public money into the oil and gas sector. Right. In a way, that's the only way they could do it. I mean, they can't really they can't really have a price cap because that's market distorting, putting aside for a moment the degree to which they distort markets in other ways. So basically what it what it becomes is a kind of a payoff for the for the energy industry. Yeah, they have an ideological commitment to this kind of framework. So they're not going to renationalize big energy companies, for example, and run them on a loss to bring down the price, which is what a socialist government would do. They're not going to go too far in terms of capping things and so on. So they're just going to throw money at it and hope for the best. There was talk of repealing the windfall tax that Rishi Sunak introduced. They've gone quiet on that, so we'll see. Right. The problem with capping from a market-obsessed perspective is that if you just say, well, we're not going to pay... I mean, the price is going to be this, then you can't make a market because if someone else is going to pay more, then the resources go there, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you can look at British politics and say, it's really a shit show right now, but it's worse elsewhere, pretty clearly. And I'm thinking of Italy, in which in the recent elections, the right coalition led by this former brown shirt, Maloney, got 44% of the vote. One of the sort of interesting things about that election, and this has been talked about a lot recently, is just that it's not like there was a huge shift of voters to the right. The Brotherhood of Italy party, that was Maloney's party, to a great extent cannibalized votes from other right-wing parties. But it is still alarming that Maloney, who is not, I mean, she's not quite brown shirt, but she's not quite, I mean, she's sort of like a tan shirt, is now coming to power. And it's alarming around Europe. I just read in the papers the other day that at least two French officials had come out and said that they're going to be monitoring politics in Italy to make sure that it conforms with civilized standards of politics, including defense of the right to abortion and all kinds of other political rights viewed as in the mainstream of European political culture, so to speak. I mean, there's an interesting analysis that Maloney has actually divided the Italian far right because of her, her tactical choices, you know, the strategy that she's taken in order to win power. Arguably, to some extent, she's mimicking the kind of Le Pen strategy in, in France, where Le Pen has tried to detoxify the former Front National, now the National Rally. I'm not convinced that Maloney's completely transformed her party in the way that Le Pen has transformed hers, of course, that transformation is also extremely questionable. So hopefully there will be fragmentation on the far right in Italy over this, and it will be a case of these far right figures being kind of captured by the state and its agency and not actually governing on the basis of their own values. That's what you'd hope. Right. I mean, it's interesting too that we're in a position now where we have two women running European countries. They happen both to be obnoxiously, Liz Truss is kind of right-ish, Relative to Maloney, who's like very right. It's one of those things where I think a lot of liberals kind of looked at the rise of women in politics and were like, well, they'll have a kind of not quite class consciousness, but you know, something sort of along that model where if women get into power, things will be better because they're not as terrible as men are, which I would hope was true, but of course turns out not to be the case. But also it's interesting that these far right movements tended to be, in the past at least, really obsessed with kind of natalism and the traditional role of women. And now you have people like Maloney and Le Pen who are not, who don't really embody that idea and say, I mean, it's kind of similar in a way to Amy Coney Barrett, the far right Supreme Court justice in the United States, who is a member of an extremely conservative Catholic sect, one that is very overtly committed to the traditional role of women in society. And yet Amy Coney Barrett, I doubt that she's there 
cooking dinner for her husband every night because she's got to be reading Supreme Court briefs. So it's sort of interesting that right-wing parties have kind of changed their focus. I think the far right has also changed its political strategy a lot in the last 20, 25 years, I think. The war on terror and the rise of popular Islamophobia has enabled them to kind of change rhetoric and change politically around things like women's rights to some degree. You know, they may be extremely socially reactionary, but they can point the finger at the radical Islamists and say, we stand for women's rights and we don't stand for them. That's what the British far right has done to a large degree. I can't really comment on the Italian far right to the same degree. They've pivoted in a large degree into transphobia. And a part of that pivot has been kind of appropriating a kind of pseudo-feminist language around sex and gender, to some degree. I can remember when 9-11 happened. Part of the rhetoric was that Laura Bush, the president's wife, who is a stay-at-home-and-read-the-Bible kind of person, was now going to become the point person on women's rights in Afghanistan or whatever, and that lasted about as long as compassionate conservatism, which is to say, not very long. But anyway, thank you everybody for tuning in, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more chat. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.